Good morning. It's good to be back at First Universalist Church. I love this church. Give yourself a round of applause. For real. Y'all were crazy enough to have me back to speak again. I don't know why, but before I start, I want to just give thanks um, to just the, the co-laborers in this work that, that labor here at this ministry. Um, Justin Schroeder, Reverend Justin Schroeder is a good friend of mine, and uh, Reverend Jen Crow and Arif and several others that just continually work tirelessly and effortlessly um, throughout the, the Twin Cities in this work for justice that we have. I also want to give a special shout out to um, a good family friend of mine. I'm growing to know them as family. Uh, the Caswells who are here, good friends came out. It's because of work like, uh, because of children like your son, Mr. Caswell, that I do the work that I do. And so just uh, congratulations, Caz, I'm graduating. I apologize I didn't make it, but I'm glad you're here, amen? Amen. So I'm going to turn this timer on because y'all can't give no black preacher no mic and not put a timer on. We'll be here all day, right? I knew that would make y'all smile. Y'all be happy to see that timer. Amen. And I want to give another just special thanks to my friend and colleague, Arif. He was like a one-man band today. I, I just, he just did everything. He was like, hey, he sat down, he got up. He sat down, he got up. He sat. I was like, man, look at this guy go. I love it. Unless you've been a pulpiteer, you wouldn't be able to understand or empathize with that kind of work. That's hard work. It looks good, but it's hard work. Amen. My name is Pastor Danny Givens, Jr. I am the senior pastor of Above Every Name Ministries. We are a new cutting-edge ministry in St. Paul. I planted the church about five years ago in St. Paul um, with a hope to begin to extend the love of God, to begin to extend the olive branch to people who have been stigmatized by life's woes, by the challenges and ills and the, and the things that we face as a people. And so Above Every Name Ministries was a place that we say that you can come and relate, receive, and be released. And so we hope to see some of y'all at least to come. Don't worry about it. We won't put you in no Jesus chokehold if you come over. And I know you're like, we're not going over there. They're going to put us to sleep in the name of Jesus. We're not going to do that. We're just, but we'd love to have you come and worship with us. Uh, we meet every Sunday at 1 o'clock. We're at the Sister Church, Unity Church Unitarian over there every Sunday at 1 o'clock, just having a good time. Um, it's an honor to be back in this pulpit again because this pulpit has been the, the launch pad for my public work in social justice. See, it was two years ago, I think it was two years ago, two years ago that this church held a healing vigil in response to the non-indictment of, of Darren Wilson, the officer who was involved with the shooting of Mike Brown down in Ferguson. And so as we know, the Black Lives Matter Minneapolis chapter started uh, shortly after uh, the Mike Brown incident happened here and began to, to show up in ways that were meaningful and real. And then First Universalists had plugged into an action that was happening, I think, with the 15 Now movement that were just desiring to raise more awareness around the issues concerning employment and earned sick time and paid sick leave and all that kind of stuff for people who are working at these low-level jobs. So I had met Reverend Schroeder probably two weeks prior to that at a, uh, a scholarly study group that all the Unitarian ministers um, in the Midwest region go to called Prairie Group. I was invited there as a guest with, by, um, by Rob Eller Isaacs, and, was, and while I was there, met Reverend Schroeder during a dinner, sat down, and we talked and just kind of hit it off. And he's a, y'all have a real smooth reverend to be a white guy, right? <laughs> reverend Schroeder is just real smooth. Just before you know it, you're having coffee with him, and he's got you up in his pulpit, right? 
But I hit it off with Reverend Schroeder, and it just was one of those kind of things where Justin just, he's a, he's a likable person. And I, I hit it off with him, and he said, you know, I would love to when we get back and do some work together and talk. And I was like, sure, and didn't know that the work would take on the shape and form that it did so quickly. So the, the, the action happened where we saw him at McDonald's, and then next thing you know, you guys are on I-35 shutting that down. And then there's this healing vigil and Reverend Schroeder held the healing vigil at uh, the behest, I think, of Lena Gardner was saying, can we hold space in the community for the community at our church to be able to just kind of unpack and be present um, during this time of brokenness and trauma? And so thankfully the church had said yes. And so they were looking for uh, an African-American preacher to come out that would be willing to pray and that could be able to pray and hold space in real and meaningful ways. And Justin, having just met me, was like, you're a likely candidate. That's the Unitarian Universalist way. They'll meet you and put you to work just like that, right? <laughs> they don't have no problem. Like, oh, sure, come on, you can preach to thousands tomorrow. Let's go. And so when I came, the place was dimly lit, and it was candles, and it was just beautiful, wonderful music. I sat over here. It was my first time here, and this church felt larger than life. Just the energy and the ambiance, everything was there. Everything that was there was just, it was a, I was touched. And I came up and I stood right here and I said a prayer. And afterwards, Lena had shared her, uh, her words and something struck me, just touched me. Because I had never had an opportunity to do work in this way and in this fashion and in, and, and in such meaningful ways like this as a faith leader. Normally, I had to go in through other means. But to come in as a faith leader, to be, to be called upon, to be seen as somebody who would, who would be uh, meaningful, who would do some real work in this, was, was an honor to me. So after that night, we had the big vigil, and a couple weeks later, they planned the Black Christmas rally at uh, the Mall of America for the first time. And Lena called me and was like, hey, would you be willing to come to the Mall of America and do the same thing you did at First Universal? I was like, sure. Who wouldn't go to the mall and pray? Right? <laughs> Who doesn't want to do that? Like, I was sure I'll go. It's like, so they was like, this is when the 007 stuff kicked in. It was like, so when you get there, somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder. Make sure you're wearing your collar. We'll know who you are. You won't know who we are. Somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder, follow that person, and go. So it was like, dun, 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 dun. All and I'm sitting there. I'm a black man, fresh out of prison. I'm still on parole. I'm thinking, you can't tap me on the shoulder and tell me to follow somebody. I don't know where I'm going, right? This is the mall. Anything can happen. And so the rotunda filled up, and, and we did the mic check, and I, and I prayed, and something shifted inside of me. It was like a voice found my voice for the first time, and I didn't understand what that was. I've been doing public speaking since I was 15 years old. I've been preaching now for 14 years. But in that moment, in 2014, there in the rotunda of the Mall of America, there was a voice that found my voice if that makes sense. And I heard my voice for the first time. Until you get a chance to allow your ears to be attuned to hear the clarion call of the voice of justice, you will never hear your voice in this world. And so as I began to speak and pray and hearing people reverberated out, so mic check goes where I'll basically say mic check and y'all will say mic check. And so I heard my voice come back through the voices of justice for the first time ever in my life. And it shook me in my spirit. It shook me to my core. 
Because I've been preaching and doing this work and, and ministry is just this work. But ministry is just this work in the context of ministry and not just in the context of justice, if that makes sense. Ministry and justice work oftentimes comes heavy laden with programs and agendas. But within the context of justice work, you just work. Whether there's a program or agenda, the only thing that we're here to do is get justice. We don't care how we get it. So as a minister, I had to unpack my preconceived notions about what justice should look like from a programmatic standpoint. You Unitarians know about programmatic standpoints, right? <laughs> and in that, it was in that moment that the voice just said, you know, do away with the program of fear that oftentimes we have when we stand up for something that we believe in. Do away with the program of needing to know all the details that we often have when we venture off into new endeavors that we're passionate about. That you had to take time out to squelch your own personality, your she-go and your ego that you would have, thinking that somehow you're the it factor in the context of this work. And just to be present, to hear the voice. What is the voice saying? For me, the voice came in the brow, came under the guise of, of scripture. In Isaiah 61, we see the scripture read, it says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach liberty to the captives, to comfort those who are broken, to allow the blind to see, and to announce to all who have been bound, basically, that freedom is here. How demonstrative that particular scripture became to me because I found that scripture while I was a captive myself. I didn't find that scripture in seminary. I didn't find that scripture in some Bible uh, workshop. I didn't find that scripture during some morning meditation. I found that scripture in a place of captivity where I didn't even understand what liberty meant outside of the fact that there was a statue about it somewhere out east. Because I hadn't yet to be set free. So while I was in prison, the tape had to go back and play again. And it had to show me where are all the areas in my life that I'm bound up? And am I going to just see it and be complacent by the injustice of me not being able to be free enough to be me in a world that says that I can be free? Will I sit back and be complacent and continue to allow myself to be marginalized by my decisions, to continue to allow myself to be broken by the challenges that I face, to continue to allow myself to be ostracized because of the color of my skin? Or will I take a stand and protest? For the justice that I profess. So when I was 18 years old, I had this bright idea to go and rob a local, light, a lot, rob a local nightclub. Myself and two other friends, and it, was, it wasn't kind of like some thing that I jumped into. I led a double life. I was doing other things. I came from a great family. I never wanted for nothing, but the streets were, were, were alluring and they were appealing. 
And so the lifestyle that I was living was a lifestyle that I was living. I won't get all into the details, but I'll share with you that 20 years ago, I made a decision that would forever change my life. I walked into this, no, to this, no, to this local nightclub where a lot of the local drug dealers hung out and all of those things. And it was, it was one of those things in my mind where, have you, have you ever kind of planned something in your mind and thought, you know, this is, this is easy, this is simple, and then get into it and it becomes much more complicated than what you thought it was, <laughs> right? Now, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, this stuff happens. It's a principle of life that sometimes, you know, this, this, there's a verse that says, you know, man plans and, you know, God basically just like, <laughs> yeah, right, sure. So I had this crazy plan to go in here and do this, and the thing didn't go according to plan, and it shouldn't have gone according to plan because it wasn't rooted in justice. It wasn't rooted in goodness, but it was where I was in my life. And so while I was in there, um, I exchanged fire with somebody in this in the back emergency exit kind of area. And the fire, the person that I exchanged fire with, I shot that person and that person shot me. When I turned to leave out of the place, I realized that I was shot and I took that first step and everything locked up on me. It felt like I had drank like some thousand proof vodka or some good moonshine. My whole body was warm and it locked up and there were people all on the ground and they were, they were scared. I was scared. I'm an 18-year-old boy. This isn't really anything that I've ever gotten into. Now, I've committed crimes and done wrong, but this right here is different because I've been injured and I've injured somebody. I get outside of the place and probably three blocks from my mom's house and it was a, it was a spring night. It was April 13, 1996 to be exact. It's a beautiful spring night and on that particular night, I could feel myself dying. I cut through this abandoned lot and I took my ski mask off and I threw that to the side and I took my gun and I threw that on the roof and I, I went and I kind of cut through this dead end alley and I, I knew I couldn't go no more because my body just started to, to shut down. I, I got the chills and I began to shake and it was like I was inside of a refrigerator. Moments after, my friends who were once with me in the club and fled while I was in the nightclub came back and found me in the alley and came and tried to pick me up and carry me to my mother's house, which was three blocks away. I told them, no, let me stay, and they left. And then shortly thereafter, paramedics show up on the scene. One of the fire, I think it was a fireman, or somebody came to the alley and had found me, said, hey, we got one back here. And then the officer came back, and another officer came back. And the next thing you know, the officer went and attacked the paramedic who was helping me and went and threw him up against the garage. And the officer came and jumped on top of my chest and started pistol whipping me. And he says, tell me who was with you. I'm going to let your black ASS die. And I'm like, I was in there having a drink. I'm lying. I'm scared and all this kind of stuff. I was in there having a drink. He was like, no, you weren't. You were in there robbing, and you shot an effing cop. It got serious for me when he said that because I knew he wasn't playing. I didn't know that the person I shot was a police officer, but I knew he was serious. So I gave names of friends of mine that were already locked up in prison just so I could be able to receive some help make it down to the hospital, died during surgery, was blessed to be brought back to life. And that life that I would wake up to know would be a life that would forever be changed. Thankfully, when I woke up, I woke up to find out that the officer, too, was alive. And now I had to fight this battle of what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How is this going to change? After 30, years, after 30 days of being locked up, they offered me a plea bargain of 60 years. They said, if you don't take the deal, 
we're going to give you 30 for shooting the officer. I had shot somebody else that night. I said, we're going to give you another 15 for shooting the other person. And 36 months for each person that was in the nightclub that night. It was 85 people there that night, so I would have never gotten out. Now, I was alive for a purpose. And I couldn't understand it in that moment. Why? The universe, why the holy, why the divine, why God, why the ancestors all lined up to say, no, we need Danny Givens Jr. to live in the face of this adversity. This is terrible what happened to the community. Shame was heaped upon my family because the officer was best friends with my grandfather on one side and my great-grandfather on the other side. The officer was a man of color, a community leader, not community, a pillar. I knew him. I didn't understand. He was in a dark alley. But it was a grave injustice that was suffered. Our community was rendered a blow. I ended up receiving a sentence of 18 years due 12. And while I was in prison serving the 12-year prison sentence, my life began to try on different fabrics. So when you're a young man, you're impressionable. When you're a young person, you're impressionable. And if you don't have any identity to lock onto, you won't find purpose in the context of who you identify as. And if you do, it'll be short-lived because it's temporary. I tried gangbanging. That wasn't me. I tried selling drugs. I was successful at it, but it's really not me. I tried robbing people. That, that wasn't me. I've tried the lifestyle, being the cool kid and being the thug. That wasn't me. It was something that I can do it, but it wasn't who I was created to be. It was, a, it was a narrative that was pumped into my community at the hands of systemic oppression that says that this is the only thing you really could be as a black man or as a person of color that comes out of these communities because if you don't subscribe to sports or entertainment, the only other options you got is gang banging, selling dope, uh, misogyny, promiscuity, addiction and all these other things there's not a whole lot of options that you have so I said I can't continue to allow this to be my excuse because excuses are the crutches of the uncommitted I needed to find something to dedicate my life to Because all dedication is, is a promise that you make to yourself. And so I needed to make a promise to myself that I would do something better with the self that I have now that I realize I'm no longer the self that I was. So June 8th, 2002, I gave my life to the Lord. After serving six years in prison now, if I was in a Christian church, they'd have clapped because my life was changed. Y'all can clap. Amen. I stopped doing wrong and started living right. I stopped, you know, doing evil and started doing good. I mean, it was, it was a change in my life. It's like a sobriety day for those. How many in sobriety in here? You know your sobriety day? So if you said, you know what, my name is Danny Givens, and I've been sober now for 38 years as of June 8th, y'all just shout, whoa, hey, Danny. But just because I say I gave my life to Jesus, y'all sitting like, oh, my God, he said the J word. <laughs> Jesus changed me. It's okay. <laughs> right? It's okay. It's all right. And so in in that, you know, the only thing that changes during change is everything. And I'm in prison like, okay, so you were a gang leader. You were a drug smuggler. You were, you know, all of this stuff in here. Now you're going to, 
where are you going to go now? Like, it wasn't like Jesus was going to show up with, like, Roman army gear on and protect me from all the big bad people in prison. That Now that I've they've changed my life and said I want to follow the, the path of love and build beloved community rather than follow the path of, of division and indifference and, and all of those things and continue to divide us. So I changed my life. And I started preaching three months after that. And it was something that happened to me radical. Radical change. And even in the context of preaching, I know, I said, well, I, I feel fulfillment, I feel purpose, I feel satisfaction. But God, I know you didn't allow me to come to prison just to be a preacher and to get out and just preach because, I mean, that's fun, but it's not a whole lot of fun. I mean, preaching is, it's only fun when people like you and they laugh at your jokes and that kind of stuff. That's what is fun. But when you go, you know, when you have those moments you don't want to get them, you want to football kick the mic off the pulpit, preaching isn't fun. I said, God, this is my vocation. I do preaching like lawyers do law. So I go to work preaching like it's, just, it's a job and it's not, it's fulfilling. It is because it's a part of my passion, but there was more to me. I said, God, this isn't redemptive enough for me. Did you hear that? A Christian just said that preaching isn't redemptive enough for him. I was looking for ways to redeem, to go back and do and get the thing that was worthy, that was of value, that I stole, that I robbed out of my community and be able to replace it, to give it back. There go the alarm. We got to stop. <laughs> we got to stop. I'm going to give you all a couple more minutes. <laughs> I'm going to give you all a couple more minutes. Amen. So... When I received the opportunity to come and pray at the vigil, it was a salvific moment for me because it changed the tide. Now I was able to come back into the community that I once taken, took from and give in real ways. I'll tell you the momentous time for me that it became real. So the Mall of America was one, but I found out why I was created at the fourth precinct occupation. I was out there and Kaz was there, and Nelson and other friends from the Tower Club at Unity Church Unitarian. There was some White Bear Lake Unity Church Unitarian youth. They were out there. There was some folks from this church. I mean, it was just, it was a beautiful time. But we were on the side of the precinct at this particular moment. And there were uh, you know, people were worked up and they were upset. The police were coming in and kind of accosting us and agitating us and doing all those things. And there were some community members that weren't necessarily a part of the protest, but they were a part of the community. That because of the trauma that they suffered at seeing this didn't have a real healthy way to unpack it. And so what they did is they, they chose to, to throw bottles and bottles of water and rocks over the fence at the police. Was that the right thing to do? No. But at that time, for them, in the context of their oppression and trauma, they felt that that's how to, that was the way that they were going to get it out. It is what it is. Meanwhile, us protesters who are peacefully demonstrating in front of the fence are there standing with our hands up saying, don't shoot. Officers then, in response to it, come over to the fence and begin to spray this orange tear gas or whatever over the fence and just tear gas the whole crowd and then unleash a hail of rubber bullets at us. 
Now, I remember, I think, specifically seeing Nelson and a couple others standing there in front of the fence. And I, having been once who was shot by somebody who's traumatized by the whole notion of shooting, began to respond how everybody else was. But somehow, my peripheral, I had caught my dear friends from Unity, my young people, saw them standing there fearlessly with their hands up, unflinching, did not move. I immediately went to stand in front of them and with them saying if they're willing to stand for this and this isn't their people, I'm willing to stand for this even more because this is my people. And it was in that moment that I began to realize that in the context of beloved community, there is no such thing as other people's children. Now, And so the thing that hit me, Arif, was this. I remember after the shooters came out, the white supremacist shooters that came out and shot up the people out there. The next day I was out there and I ended up preaching for like an hour and a half straight. I just was somewhere else. And I remember telling the people, it just hit me. I said, you know, I went from being a person who was the perpetrator involved with the officer-involved shooting to being the protester of officer involved shootings and in that moment I felt the holy and the ancestors open up and says this is the reason I took you from prison to protest so that you could see the power of the love of beloved community when we come together and fight for justice Ashe and Amen